0: So we are back into Acts twenty six this week. We've been out for several weeks, this is why I asked Tom to read um, read the context of the passage we're looking at this morning. We're gonna be looking basically at verse twenty or I'm sorry, verse nineteen through thirty two at the end of the chapter this morning. So just to give you an idea where we are. We're obviously jumping in midstream in the storyline, although the storyline started quite a while ago. Uh, But the immediate story, we're we're looking at it midpoint in the interaction with King Agrippa. So we'll see that as we work our way through. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll jump into our study this morning. Help us, Lord, as we look at your text, as we look at this uh, passage. Uh, I pray that you will open our eyes again to see, understand. Uh, Lord, I pray you will protect us from merely a pursuit of knowledge. But instead, I ask that you would do what you have promised to do in your children's lives. That you would soften our hearts, that you would draw us close, that you'd expose us both to our own need and our sinfulness as well as your holiness and your, your uh, glory and um, the beauty of your salvation. So work in us this morning and help us to worship you with knowledge, but not to be satisfied merely with knowledge. So glorify yourself in your name I pray, amen thank you Tom for reading from uh, earlier on and getting the context we know that in chapter 26 as we've seen already that Paul is is being uh, examined by King Agrippa he'd already been examined by by Festus and now he's and Felix before him and now it's on to Agrippa and according to how Agrippa uh, interacts with the setting the the trial as it were Uh, is how Paul's life is going to play out from here on out now we know the story because we have chapters 27 and 28 as well but uh, at this stage of the storyline of Paul's examination before he goes to get shipped off to Rome uh, we have some interesting things going on in the text now I struggled I'll be honest I struggled with how to present this text to you and the reason why is twofold number one because we're coming into the middle of the story and uh, we've already talked about the previous part of the story, but I don't want to spend too much time talking about the previous part. Uh, so if, you're, if, if, you're, if it's a little fuzzy with you, I'd encourage you to read all of chapter 26, even though Tom started at 12 or 13 or so. <clears throat> and the other, thing, the other reason why I struggle is because I would argue the key verse in this entire passage is verse um, 20. It is the key that interprets the entire section that we're looking at but it comes early on in the text and so I was trying to decide do I want to present at the beginning at the end chronologically as we just work our way through the text and I think we're going to just do it chronologically as we work our way through the text as we've done so often in this narrative book called the book of Acts uh, we have not had a nice neat o- uh, outline that we've worked through but we've just Wandered through it verse by verse connecting the verses connecting the ideas and showing the big picture of how it all flows together So we can understand exactly what's going on. We're going to do the same thing here. You'll notice in verse 19 as Paul uh, is uh, presenting his uh, Defense which he's been doing up to this point in time as primarily his defense is almost exclusively focused on what? Christ and the gospel right it and it's going to continue from here on out, he's going to continue that all the way to the end. It's not a personal defense by any stretch of the imagination. He is defending the truth about Jesus. And he's defending the truth about God's gospel. Is what he's doing every step of the way. Which answers the first dilemma that we have in our thinking because we're jumping in midstream in the storyline. Verse 19 starts out, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the earthly vision. And, of course, the therefore shows us we're in the middle of a storyline. What is Paul referring to when he declares to King Agrippa he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision? Well, the first thing we automatically re- recognize and remember in the storyline is when, when Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, he had a, a vision. So certainly that is being referenced as a near context to this statement. When he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In fact, he goes on in verse 20 and talks about all the places he declared the gospel to. Correct? So he is being faithful. He's not being disobedient. Because the vision that, that Saul received from God was that he's being saved for a purpose. And he was appointed to bring the gospel. Correct? And so he's saying, I wasn't being unfaithful I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision I would argue however that there's a bigger context than just the immediate context of the vision that that Saul later Paul had on the road to Damascus when he talks about being disobedient to the heavenly vision this is a twofold near and far statement the near of course is what happened on the road to Damascus but the road to Damascus is based upon something bigger Something much more significant than merely the event. And I don't want to minimize the event that took place on on the road to Damascus, but it's much bigger. What was Saul doing before he had his vision on the road to Damascus? He was persecuting Christians. He was traveling everywhere he could, and he was killing, imprisoning, and persecuting uh, believers and trying to convince them and persuade them, with much force, by the way, to deny Jesus. Why was he doing that? Now the easy answer is because he wasn't saved. That's the easy answer. It's the right answer. But he wasn't saved yet. But there's another answer that goes along with that. Because it was his mission. And why was it his mission? Because he saw that believers in Jesus Christ were what? From his perspective, they were in error. to Judaism, the law being part of Judaism. They were, from his perspective, an error to everything he knew about the Old Testament. But something happened on the road to Damascus, didn't it? And the one thing is he got saved, obviously, correct? But the the bigger point is that on the road to Damascus, when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus who you persecute. <clears throat> Immediately by the Spirit, Saul the, saw, saw the connection between Jesus, the one who died on the tree, and his followers, correct? But more importantly, he saw by the Spirit the most important of all connections, and that is the connection with Jesus to the Old Testament for the first time he understood that Jesus actually is was and is the fulfillment of all the prophecy and the laws of the Old Testament they all pointed to him for the first time he understood that and for the first time he realized if I may use the term vision His vision of the Old Testament law and the prophets was all wrong. Up to the point in time when he was on the road to Damascus when he had this vision with Jesus speaking to him, right? Up to that point in time, he grossly misunderstood the Old Testament law and prophets. Did he not? He, in effect, pre- Experience on the and salvation, conversion on the road to Damascus, up to that point, you could argue, and Paul would certainly argue, he was what? No, up to that point in time, he was what? Disobedient, correct? To the entire truth of the Old Testament. That's why in Philippians chapter 3, he counts all that he was before the road to Damascus as what? Dung. Refuse, useless, condemning. So when he says in verse nineteen, "Therefore, O King Agrippa," and remember, when he speaks to Agrippa, he's speaking to a guy who intimately knew the Old Testament law and prophets. In fact, he he and his father and his forefathers were all intimately connected and followers of the Old Testament. His father built the or redid the temple. And expanded the temple so very much intimately involved which is why in chapter 26 right at the very beginning Saul says I am excited about talking to you and giving my defense to you because you know these things so he says to King Agrippa I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision which is not just the event itself of his conversion but it's the reality that what he thought he knew of the Old Testament law and prophets, he did not know correctly. And since he was saved, everything changed. No, now his vision is twenty-six twenty. Chapter twenty-six, verse twenty. Suddenly his spiritual vision has changed, has it not? Whereas before he thought he knew, he did not know, but by the Spirit, on the road to Damascus, suddenly he understood, and from that point onward, he says to King Agrippa, "I was not disobedient." So it's not merely the call of preaching; it is the call of the entirety of the Scriptures. He's been fa- he's been he's been faithfully presenting the truth of the Scriptures every step of the way. So then he goes on in verse twenty. But he declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. I want to continue on real quickly to verse 21. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Now I want to stop, the reason why I read 21 with verse 20, because I said 20 I think is the key verse in the whole section, but the reason why I wanted to read 21 along with verse 20 because you need to see the juxtaposition between the two of them. It is intriguing when you read verse 21 in light of verse 20 20 itself, the statement that people should repent and turn to God performing deeds in, in keeping with their repentance. Verse 21 initially makes no sense. Because again, Saul says, or Paul says here, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. That makes no sense. Why does it make no sense? Initially, it makes no sense because Jews believed in repentance. They believed in turning to God. And they certainly believed in performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Jews throughout the the ages, except for when they were totally carnal, and totally turned their back on God in every way, like before Josiah, for example. They believed in repentance. They believed in turning to God. And they believed in performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Yet, Paul says in verse 21, "The Jews, for this reason Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Well, how do we bring those two together to make sense of this? Because we must make sense of it because in initial reading it makes no sense it takes a little thinking to realize what 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 Paul is really doing here what Paul in effect has done in verse 20 is this when he says that he's going to all these regions and telling them that they should repent and turn to God the context is really clear what's Paul saying Jesus that's who he's talking about what what Paul is doing in verse 20 is he's equating clearly since he talked about the vision the near the near statement of the vision is about what Jesus on the road to Damascus right and he's being saved rep- through repentance by the work of the Spirit to Jesus being the Messiah correct near is that far context is referencing how the old testament the entire of the old testament did what pointed to Jesus it foreshadows and points points to Jesus when he says in verse 20 that they should repent and turn to God he is talking about Jesus it's it's it stated not only here it stated throughout his ministry from the time of his conversion it stated in all of his epistles this idea that Jesus is God number one of the father number three that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets that's exactly what he's referring to here no wonder why they wanted to kill him right because they did not believe that just like Paul didn't believe when he was Saul before the road to Damascus did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah as a matter of fact they believed he was worthy of death and therefore his followers are worthy of death so again I said the key verse verse 20 is not about his journeys per se although certainly his journeys are showing that he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision verse 19 correct But the message of what Paul was bringing to the Gentiles as well as some Jews is what is absolutely essential to the text and I want to pause on that in verse 20 again because it's probably one of the best descriptions of what what repentance really is I hear people talk in all sorts of weird ways about repentance and usually what the weird ways are usually what the weird ways are, is about this idea that, that repentance means turning from something. Or sometimes it's said it is um, a, an agreement with God that you uh, were in error, were in sin. Now are those two statements true in themselves? Well, yes. Do we need to agree with God? Well, yeah. There's no turning if, if, or changing of one's mind If there is no uh, recognizing that God is holy number one and we are not holy we are unholy we are sinners a clear teaching Old Testament and New Testament but the problem is most times people don't really comprehend what repentance really is in its entirety this text although it uses the word repentance only once in verse 20 in reality, it could be argued and should be argued that the entirety of the statement is referencing repentance. It's three statements that are three parts, I would argue, of the entirety of the totality of repentance. So walk with me through it if you would. He says first in verse 20, after he gives the description of where he went, he starts talking about his message to them. That they should repent, is the first statement. There's three statements. Number one, that they should repent. That word by itself, as is given in the text, when it says that they should repent, carries some heavy weight. The first idea is a recognition. There is something wrong. Because the word repentance has the idea of changing one's mind and turning from because you can't change your mind without turning from there's something really wrong if I may use the illustration if you hit yourself in the head with a hammer and you say that was bad that was wrong I changed my mind about that that was not good and yet you continue to hit your head with the hammer That doesn't make much sense does it to hit yourself in the head with a hammer and then acknowledge And have a change of mind you thought that was a good thing and change your mind with regard to that and say that's a really bad thing the evidence that you really believe that's a bad thing is what firstly that you stop hitting yourself in the head with a hammer does that is there anybody here that that does not make sense to because if that doesn't make sense to you then we got some more talking to do (laughs) I mean serious problems it should make absolute sense to everybody repentance is first an acknowledgement that the way I thought about blank is not what correct it was wrong now more specifically when it comes to the things of the scriptures repentance is acknowledging the way I thought about this way of thinking or that activity, or the combination usually of the thinking and activity that I was approaching a certain aspect of my life was not right based upon. It's really important. Because we can have all sorts of ideas about what's right and wrong, right? We can say, oh, this was, and usually it's about, well, that didn't work. That was not right, Well, it's because it didn't work. Or the end result wasn't what I was expecting it to be. That's not what repentance in the Scriptures is. A change of mind with regard to something referenced in the Scriptures is this. I believed blank. But upon the Spirit's work in my life, opening my eyes to see the truth of what God says in the Scriptures and what God reveals about Himself in the scriptures, I put that word, those words in there twice. Him about in the scriptures causes me by the Spirit to realize what I've been thinking, the way I've been thinking about blank, whatever blank is, is wrong. Or better use of words would be, it is sinful. It is not godwardly correct. It is not Godwardly honoring. It is not for the glory of God. it is for something else. That's an agreement. That's the first step in repentance is recognizing and being in agreement that the way I was thinking about blank and the way I was acting about with regard to blank, whatever the blank is, was wrong and sinful because Of what God says in His Word and about Himself and about holiness. Everybody with me so far? But the repentance mentioned by Paul here in verse 20 is bigger than that. See, I find a lot of people will say that repentance is just what I described. Some form of acknowledgement. That God said this, but I was thinking this. And I want to say right away that that is just the first step of repentance. Because the repentance being referenced in verse 20, that first statement, repentance, in verse 20, when he says that they should repent, is referencing more than saying, I was wrong in my thinking. And actions. But it is also including a repentance from that. Okay? From that. And it's also a repentance from something else. There's two froms. The first from is from how I'm I've been thinking with regard to what God said, what I think is best in comparison or contrast, what God thinks and what and who god is but it's also from the activities that are being derived or flowing from how i've been thinking i've had wrong ways of thinking about about what life should be like in this certain area or that certain area and i've been therefore responding and acting in life to these things in the wrong ways and saying things that are not consistent with what God says. So I repent from, because that's Paul's call, to repent from the thought things. But it's also a repentance from the activity of those. It's, it's a repentance, for, you see, it's one thing to say I'm repenting from that. I agree with God now that that was wrong ways of thinking, but I'm still going to do these things. What would that be called? Hypocritical? What else? It's willful rebellion. Ign- simply acknowledging that God says this and I say that, or God says I should be this way and I, th- I think my way is this way, and I can actually even say that's bad, but I'm still going to do it. It's willful rebellion. Does that make sense? It's absolute willful rebellion. And so when He is going to these people, He is calling them to repentance. And I need to tell you one more repentance thing. From. Because this is the basics of the other two. One cannot repent from ways of thinking with regard to specific things in my life repenting from blank repenting from blank thinking about these different things and therefore then repenting from the way I'm acting and speaking in light of how I was thinking one cannot do that unless they have a more basic repentance than that and the basic repentance that Paul is mentioning here is a repentance from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Or to put it a different way, a repentance from being outside of Christ and repentance too, because we're going to see a two in a second, I'm bridging a gap here, to Christ. That we call what? Conversion justification it's that 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 point in time where I go from being an enemy of God to being a friend and family of God it's when I go from being what dead in my trespasses and sins to by faith what by faith believing in Jesus right going from death to life correct so the call to repentance can only take place, therefore, if we remember Ephesians chapter 2, if, is if what? The Spirit's at work. The Spirit is making me alive and giving me the faith to believe. And that is the call. Not, the call is not for the Spirit to do those things, but if the Spirit's at work in somebody, the call that Paul has given to these Gentiles primarily, and also the Jews, is what? If the Spirit's at work in you, then you should Repent. Repent from death to life. From evil to righteousness. From the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. From darkness to light. From Satan to Christ. Conversion. Justification. Repenting and believing is the idea. So his first call in this study of repentance is a repentance from. We see that, right? But again, I want to say this before we move on into the rest of repentance here. Repentance that is merely from something is useless. Repentance from without a, something else added to it is what? Does it do anything for us? A repentance from without anything else is nothing. Again, with the hammer hitting in the head. Is it anything? No. You're still smashing your brains to shreds, aren't you? You just acknowledge it wasn't worth anything, but you're still doing it. It's kind of like somebody who says, well, I realize blank is wrong, but I have no other alternative, so I'm just going to keep doing it. There's no other thing I can do. Do you realize that's exactly what unsaved people are in the position of? If they realize that the Gospel is true, but they don't turn to Christ, what? What are they left with? Nothing they are are they condemned or are they not they're absolutely condemned there's no question now if the spirit is moving in their life they're going to do what though repent from and we're gonna find repent to and that's what exactly we see here it says he's calling the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God now those please understand those are not two totally separate things It is a repentance from and a repentance to the, they, he's calling them to repent from. And if the Spirit's working in their life, they will, by the Spirit, do what? Repent from, right? They will confess their sins. They will repent and believe, right? Even repent and believe has a repentance from and a repentance to, doesn't it? I didn't believe before, now I believe. And that's exactly what, what, saw, what Paul is saying here. He's calling these people to repent from and a repent to repent to god that is that they would turn from the kingdom of darkness and turn to the kingdom of light now that as we've said many times before that is by the power of the holy spirit however that repent to is every bit as important as repent from if the spears at work in someone's life what that means is they will they will be people who will repent from and will repent too that is they will at one point in time if I may use exhibit a they will at one point in time be exactly like Saul halfway to Damascus and before did he love Jesus halfway before Damascus and before no did he despise Jesus did he go his own way did he wander astray did he find anything beautiful about Jesus no he despised and rejected him didn't he and in case you didn't pick it up I was quoting Isaiah 53 yes even if he wasn't conscious of it because Saul was was very active right and everything he did ultimately opposed Jesus. He probably didn't even realize it was opposing the actual Messiah. Because like any good Jew, he'd been looking for a Messiah, right? Of course he would have. But because the Spirit wasn't moving in his life, there's no way he could connect that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. But what was he doing every step of the way? Every step of the way, he was opposing the things of God, even though he didn't understand it that way. He was. He was. That is no different from any other unsaved person that has ever lived on this planet. They opposed the true things of God. The Bible tells us that we all hated Him. So it says, we all did. And all unsaved people still hate Him. They would never acknowledge that, but they did. They hated Him. And it wasn't just a mild hate despised and rejected but when the spirit moves as as Paul as Paul ministers these people and calls them to repent as the spirit moves some of them actually repent and when they repent the evidence that they are truly by the spirit repenting from all those things that make up the kingdom of darkness is what they, well, not that yet, they also repent, what? To God. They, that repenting to God is an agreement with God that God is who He says He is and that Jesus is who He says He is, that He is the Messiah, that He is the, the 100% God, 100% man. He is the Messiah. He is the hope of the world. And they find by the Spirit, and this is the idea of repentance to God, they find that the one that they hated is now more beautiful, more glorious, more to be sought after, more to love than anything else they could possibly imagine. And that is because they've been given a new heart. The result is that they do turn to God. They do repent to God. Those who truly by the Spirit are responding to Paul's message and are repenting from hatred of Jesus, and as a result of hatred towards Jesus, they're turning from that and and they're also at the same time turning from the spirit is revealed to them as wrong ways of thinking and acting and they begin to repent from those things and as a result they're repenting to god responding to the truth of who jesus is and by the spirit working in their living heart their soft fleshy heart that now what happens is they don't just love God in some sort of esoteric way, love Jesus in some sort of esoteric way. Instead, what is happening when they turn to God? That turning to God is a totality of turning to God, isn't it? Correct? And that's why we see the third part of the statement. They're repenting from and repenting to and when those two take place, and if the first one really is taking place by the Spirit, the second one will take place by the Spirit is the argument throughout the scriptures, I would argue it's even here. When the first one, the repentance from, takes place in, the, in someone who had, was lost and in rebellion against God, and they turn from, they repent from. And to God, the, the supernatural inevitability, because God has given them a new heart, is this. Lastly, they will find themselves in repenting from and repenting to or turning to God. They will begin to perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. This is stated in the Gospels numerous times. The same exact statement. Repenting from, turning to God, or repenting to God, and performing deeds and you notice i love the way he puts it deeds in keeping with their repentance in other words the idea is that what happens with in the life of the believer the one who the spirit is working in who repent from repent to is what inevitably happens is that these deeds that are in keeping with repentance begin to what They begin to manifest themselves. Absolutely correct. They they begin to show up. Why? Because if the Spirit of God is great enough to take someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins and make them alive, if the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to take someone who has a heart that is, is opposed to God, and every person at all times were naturally opposed to God, If the Spirit is powerful enough to take someone who is absolutely opposed to the truth of God especially the truth of Jesus Christ and take them from that to being someone who is repenting that is turning to God and the things of God the Holy Spirit also is powerful enough to cause something to happen in that person and what is that thing that is going to happen Sanctification, the the deeds will begin to show. Elsewhere, the, the scriptures describe it as the fruit of the spirit. Notice what it is. It's not the fruit of the Christian, is it? It's the fruit of the Spirit, which means, and he goes on and lists them, doesn't he? In Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, long suffering. And there's a few others there. I'm running out of steam on that right now. You get the idea. The idea is, if the if 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 the spirit is powerful enough to do that, turn you from, and powerful enough to turn you to, he's also powerful enough to do what? Produce his fruit, right? Not yours. His fruit in you. That is fruit that is consistent. Lives that are consistent, more and more consistent all the time. With what? With the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And more importantly, as John puts it, to produce lives that more and more resemble their new father, God, and less and less like their old father, Satan. That's the natural or supernatural process of someone who the spirit is at work in it's very important we get this it's a great picture and when you or description i mean and when you look at the description paul gives here it's important and we need to remember elsewhere in acts as well as in all the epistles he lays out this is all by the spirit right this is not man's doing this is god's doing paul does not leave any wiggle room again that one may merely have a repentance from and be saved Paul does not leave any wiggle room that someone may repent from and repent to God and not have any evidence of that and not bear the deeds In Paul's theology, the idea is, if I may say it this way, pastors we all know so very well, I'm confident of this very thing, that he, He who began the good work in you will what? Will be faithful to complete it or will continue to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Until He returns. Or until we go home to be with Him. If He started it, the spirit will continue it if he started through the process of a repentance from he will continue it to a repentance to and then it will continue into a performing deeds that are consistent with repentance evidence that repentance actually took its place in the person's life I had someone ask me just yesterday about Judas. And he, the person asked me, said, so did Judas ever repent of his sin of, of, um, of betraying Jesus? And I said, well, it depends on how you define that. Right? It depends on how you define what? Repentance. Did he repent from what he did? Yeah, he really did repent from, right? He was devastated by what he'd done, wasn't he? He was absolutely crushed by what he had done. And his, his being crushed was so significant, what did he do? What was one of the evidences of it? He tried to return the money. He didn't. He tried to. And they wouldn't take it, and so he threw it away, right? Threw it on the ground. And he, he was so devastated by it that he was weeping and grieving was he not and it got so bad that he did what he actually hanged himself that sounds like some pretty serious repentance from doesn't it that's pretty extreme i would argue most people a lot of people who claim to be believers but they only believe in the whole repentance from they don't go that far but james tells us what about that it had no effect on his salvation none It was a worldly sorrow and it did not lead to christ he had no hope it was merely repentance from ah but when the spirit brings heavenly repentance and sorrow what happens people repent from and when and as they're repenting from they're repenting to God and when someone repents from and to because the spirits at work in their life and has made them alive has regenerated them what happens it is inevitable the the third part happens and they begin bearing deeds in keeping with or consistent with their repentance that's what the scriptures tell us repeatedly it's everywhere so let me just pause that for a second should it be expected should it be expected that if the spiritually working in somebody and has made them alive has regenerated them should it be expected that they will first repent from the kingdom of darkness and repent from evil should that not be expected from sin Do you think that sin is a big issue for them? Should that be expected? Should they be devastated by their sin? Would you expect them merely to be flippant about it and say, yeah, you're right, it wasn't good? No, you'd expect some sort of devastation, right? I mean, a shocking reality. I mean, stop and think about it for a second. If the Spirit opens your eyes to see the grossness and the sinfulness of your life, that would mean, let's say you that happens when you're 30 years old. Make sense? Just for sake of discussion. And the Spirit opens your eyes to see that you've been part of the kingdom of darkness and full of sin. Every step of the way. And you've thrown it all away. Correct? If you threw, threw away 30 years of your life in any category, do you think you'd have a pretty strong response to that in anything? Do you think you'd have some pretty re- strong response to that? If you don't believe it, all you got to do is, is meet somebody who's 60 years old and has five years to retirement and discovers for the first time they don't have any retirement because they, they burned it all up. Do you think they're like, ah, yeah, so what? Is that how they respond their backs bad now they can't work they're in agony they can't do any any type of labor like that then you're like oh well okay sir sirrah, sirrah. whatever will be will be Is that how they respond no if, if they respond that way there's something really gross about that isn't there that's not how they respond they're devastated by it oh my goodness what am I gonna do I know the Social Security won't support me what am I gonna do it's hopeless! You know what that is? That's a repentance from. But if the Spirit is at work, they discover that's all hopeless. And Christ is all hope. Does that make sense? That's a repentance from and to. But it should be devastating. You should expect that. It certainly was that way with Paul, wasn't it? Again, Philippians chapter 3. He considered it all what? Dung. Refuse. He considered all that something worthy of being flushed down the toilet, but they didn't have toilets then like we do. That's literally what he's talking about. Shameful to him. Horrifying to him. But he finds Christ in that same book. What? All hope. Doesn't he? Why? Why? because he realized he's forgiven of all that and he's drawn to christ you see the issue is not come on people you need to repent of that come on people you need to turn to god no because when the Spirit is at work this is what's really cool what happens is that someone does not need to be cajoled and guilted into all sorts of crazy things to to do what to turn from and to turn to do they remember the day of pentecost What happened? Peter was up preaching and he said, this same Jesus who you crucified and the people were what? They were pierced to the heart and the response that they had was immediately what? What must we do to be saved? You know what that means? They realized for the first time in their life they are doomed. Excuse me. Doomed. Hopeless. And it's horrifying to them. And so they do what? They cry out, what must we do to be saved? They find out and they repent and believe by the Spirit. And what's the evidence of that? The evidence, uh, I'm sorry, what happens next? What happens next is that Peter gets up and says, now you need to also repent to God. Now you need to love Him. And now you need to do all these things. Is that what Peter does? No. What happens? They turn to God, don't they? And they love Jesus. And then what happens? They start worshiping Him. And they start gathering together. And they start showing what? Deeds that are consistent with their good works. And I'm sorry, deeds consistent with their repentance. It evidences itself, doesn't it? It evidences itself. We saw it the, day of, the day of Pentecost, and we saw it every step of the way. Remember, way back in Acts, when we talked about the previously uh, was he lame or blind guy, who Jesus healed, and he didn't even know who he was, really. And he started telling the or talking to the Pharisees, and, hey, you want to meet him too? You want to find out about Jesus too? That was actually in the Gospels, but you get the point. What happened? Their hearts were changed and when it was changed they turned to god right and when their hearts were changed they turned to god what happened the spirit was working and they immediately started doing what bearing fruit consistent with their repentance did that happen in saul's life well let's look at it he's doing what going to kill christians and persecute christians and then what happens he meets jesus and the first thing that happens you remember Acts chapter 9, the first thing that happens is what? Jesus speaks. And then and then he says to Saul, I want you to go to Damascus, and you'll meet someone who will help you there and teach you these things. And what does Saul do? He goes to Damascus. And he meets Ananias, doesn't he? Does that sound like a repentance from and to? Up to this point in time, how do you respond to anything Jesus said? He didn't. He hated it. He despised it. He went a different way. But then he met Jesus. He was gloriously saved. And what happens? He first turns what? The first thing that happens is a repentance from and a repentance to Jesus. He's listening to Jesus. He's receiving the word, is he not? He's turned to God. And then when Jesus tells him what to do, what does he do? he goes and in going he's doing what showing the deeds that are consistent with what happened on the road to Damascus and then three days later he gets his eyesight back and then what's the first thing he does he shows deeds consistent with his repentance does he not he goes to the synagogue and he preaches Christ and him crucified and all the Christians are like what in the world's going on We know this guy. He was coming to kill us and to persecute us. But the deeds that are consistent with repentance are there, are they not? Now, surely that must just be an isolated case, right? I'm sure that's not to be expected as normal when someone gets saved, is it? The answer is yes. That is how God works. That is what it means to be redeemed. And we must not sell that short so now we get to verse 21 and we see for this reason the jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me why they believed in repentance they believed in in um turning to god and they believed in deeds consistent with their repentance but they did not believe that jesus was god and turning to jesus was something because the spirit was not at work in them was absolutely abhorrent to them. And so they sought Him to kill Him. Which takes on 22. To this day, I've, I've had the help that comes from God. And what help is He talking about? The Holy Spirit helped that would do what? Cause deeds consistent with repentance to flow out of His life. That's what He's talking about. Now, I want to say one more thing about that as we work our way through 22 and following. This, this, this idea that I've heard so often that I used to believe myself that somehow we are saved by grace through faith alone and sanctified by our works. And you've heard me say it before that's not correct, that's not consistent with the scriptures. The idea, even here, is that if the Spirit is at work, that's going to happen. Does that make sense? It is going to happen. It's not something i got to pick myself up by bootstraps and make sure it happens. The vast majority of Christianity would argue that we're saved by grace through faith alone, but functionally speaking, we are sanctified by our works. No, we work, as it says in Philippians, why? Because He is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Any work we do, any deeds that you and I do are because the Spirit is at work in us and because we see Christ as ultimately glorious and beautiful, it is something we desire to do. We long to do. We love to do because the Spirit is the one who is doing these things in our lives. That distinction is absolutely essential. Because there's going to be many in that day that will say, Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to say, but didn't we what do all these things in your name? Well, all that doing, according to the greater sweep of the Scriptures, all that doing was all about things that they were doing. And it was not accompanied by faith, which is brought by the Spirit. And so that's why Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And the idea is, I never knew you, and therefore there's no way you could have known me. Correct? So verse 22 again, to this day I have, I, I have had the help that comes from God and so I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would, uh, said would come to pass. So exactly what we are saying. He's been proclaiming since, since the road to Damascus, proclaiming that all the Old Testament prophets pointed to Jesus. And it, all, it has all come pat, to pass exactly as he said. And therefore the call of verse 20. To repent from to and perform deeds verse 23 and the specifics are that Christ must suffer and that by being the first uh, to rise from the dead he would proclaim both light to our people and to the Gentiles And of course now there's twofold things for them to hate him about right the one is Christ and the other one is the Gentiles the Gentiles that the gospel is moving primarily to the Gentiles so, of course, they're going to be very upset. Verse 24, then, it's interesting. We get this interplay going on between Paul and Festus, as well as Paul and Agrippa. Verse 24, and as he was saying these things, which we were just covering, as he's saying these things, Festus had gotten enough. He'd had it with him. And he says with a loud voice, he's yelling at him, and he says with a loud voice, Paul, You're out of your mind. Your great learning is is driving you out of your mind. Now remember, Festus is a Gentile. He doesn't have the background of the law. He doesn't have the background of the prophets. He doesn't have any of that. And so what Paul is talking about is what? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It is foolishness to those who don't believe correct, is absolute foolishness. The Spirit is clearly not working in Festus' life combined with the fact he doesn't understand these things he's talking about. But the Spirit's not at work in his life. And so, at the same time, he recognizes that Paul has got a lot of learning. He's smart. He's working through the Scriptures. And by the way, his interaction with Agrippa all the way through from 12 all the way till present here in verse 23 is a synopsis of what Paul was saying so Paul was probably unpacking a whole lot of scriptures and laying out the specifics of how the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus and so finally Festus reacts and says you're a nut job you're insane all this is nothing more than babbling which is evidence what that up to this point in time Festus is not repenting from nor two, nor is he exhibiting deeds that are consistent with the repentance correct no it's foolishness to those who are perishing but Paul says interestingly enough I am NOT out of my mind most excellent Festus but I'm speaking true and rational words now I want to pause in that for a second to help you understand something when he says I am speaking true and rational words he's saying He's saying to him, he's saying, no, I'm not out of my mind. If you look at what I've been saying, everything makes sense. Everything is connected to the Scriptures. Everything I've done with the Scriptures is well-reasoned. I'm not f- playing free and easy with the Scriptures. All I'm doing is showing how these people have misunderstood the Scriptures. Because all the Scriptures point to Jesus. The reason why I mention that is when it says rational, it doesn't mean he's using some sort of Greek uh, Greek um, type of, of rational argumentation. He's just merely showing this is what the Scriptures say. He's not talking stupidly. He's not talking non-understandably. It's all understandable. It's all carefully reasoned. It's all carefully presented. So he says... <clears throat> Again, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. The implication being, Paul is saying, No, no, you can't pass it off that easy. Does that make sense? You can't pass it off that easy this is just a nutcase. You can, you can examine the scriptures with me, you can see if I'm handling the scriptures correctly or not, but you can't just pass it off as being insane. Either I'm right and truth is being declared. Or I'm wrong and I'm presenting falsehood this is not an issue of sanity it's an issue of either it's truth or it is not at which point in time Paul then turns verse 26 to King Agrippa he says for the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly why because King Agrippa is steeped in the Old Testament law and prophets so to him I speak boldly for I am persuaded or a better way to put it when he says boldly for understanding, he speaks strongly. He speaks carefully. He's carefully exegeting the text for them, for King Agrippa, because King Agrippa knows the text. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. In other words, what Paul is saying to to Agrippa and, and Festus is, although you don't understand these things because you don't understand the Old Testament law at all, Agrippa does. And he knows exactly what I'm saying. And when he listens to what I'm saying, he has to realize that what I'm saying is carefully reasoned and is carefully handling the Scriptures. We're not doing these things in secret. We are not uh doing them in a corner we're not trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes and then he turns directly to king agrippa verse 27 king agrippa do you believe the prophets (laughs) i love paul's paul's question do you believe the prophets i know you do like agrippa can't get out of this one he and his family have a history of agreeing with and supporting the old testament and following the old testament they've been as faithful as they know how to be to the old testament do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa then has to respond to the question, but he avoids in his response, does he not? Instead of saying, yes, I agree with the prophets because the statement I agree with the prophets means what? Paul's right, which means that Jesus is God and He is the Messiah. He can't go there because what's going to happen next? He will lose all the Jews. Correct? They will turn on him. And now he will be where? On trial with Paul. He can't do that. At the same time, he can't say, no, I don't believe the prophets. Can he? Because he still loses all the Jews. Whatever he says, as a response to the direct question, he loses. And so what Agrippa does instead he says, "In such a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian?" What an interesting answer. Political answer, isn't it? Totally political answer. Non-answer. He's saying to Saul, "In such a time, in this short of a time, you in just these couple hours of talking, you actually think I will join this rejected cult called Christians?" this condemned group of people you actually think in a short period of time and he thinks he's getting away with it all right escaping what could come and paul responds to his statement by saying what paul says whether short or long i would to god that not only you but all who hear me this day might become such as i am except for those chains Listen, I don't care. He's telling. He's telling Agrippa. Listen, I don't care if it's long or short. Why is he? Ba- what is he basing that on? He knows that the Spirit works when He wills, right? The Spirit works when He wills, whether it's short time or long time, whether it's just right now, right here, altar call type of scenario, or whether it's going to be another year or two. That's irrelevant to me. My only concern is that everyone that hears the gospel would do what? Repent from. Repent too, and bear the deeds in, that are consistent with repentance. That's all he's saying. He's going back to where again? The gospel, isn't he? He's going right back to the gospel once again. But he knows, of course, not, he's, it's clear in all of his writings that most don't. But what he's saying is, that's my hope, my desire. So you, you, if I may just pause this, there's an interesting interplay going on. You've got Festus and, and I'm sorry, Festus and, and Agrippa who are rejecting what? The gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God, to quote Peter in the Gospels. They're rejecting it. Both of them are. Correct? And the result of rejecting is that Festus accuses him of, of being what? Crazy or insane, which is what? Could I use this term? It is the deeds that are consistent with lack of repentance. Is it not? The deeds that are consistent with no repentance, because there are deeds that are consistent with no repentance, right? And it's going to be anti Christ, isn't it? Against Christ. And you find Festus clearly. Not just rejecting the message, but rejecting the carrier of the message as well. Correct? Deeds consistent with lack of repentance. With lack of a heart change. You come to Agrippa, do you have the same thing? You absolutely do. It's a different flavor, but it's the same exact thing. Compare and contrast it with Paul. Did Paul on the road to Damascus repent from... He clearly did. Did he repent to God? He clearly did. Did he have demonstration of deeds consistent with his repentance? Yes, he did. Did it continue after Damascus? Did it continue up to the present point? Yes, and now at this late date for Paul, what happens? When he is challenged by Agrippa, his only response is what? twofold whether long or short my only desire is that you would all have what a repentance from a repentance to and deeds consistent with repentance that is that you would receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and what I love about his statement is in verse 29 whether long or short I would to God I love that statement You know what that is? You know what that that statement is? Extreme passion. Extreme desire for what? People to know and love Jesus. This tells us very clearly that this is not Paul saying, well, if I may put it this way, this is not Paul saying, well, God saved me and He commands me to tell people about Jesus, so I guess I better get out there and tell Agrippa and Festus and all these people present that they need to repent and believe. Do you realize that? That's not what this is. In Paul's life, what do we find when he says, I would to God that you were this, that, and something else? It's almost the equivalent of elsewhere he says, I'd be willing to die that some people could be saved. He says that in 2 Corinthians. Corinthians. I'd even be willing to die if that would help people be saved. Where is that coming from? That's coming from a new heart, isn't it? A spirit giving him a new heart, and the spirit at work in him to do what? He works because the spirit is at work within, right? And so the result is there is a even to the very core of his longings and desires, something has changed. Do you sense that there in the text? And it's it's not, does the Bible command us to evangelize? Of course it does. We've talked about that before. We don't want to minimize the commands. But again, what does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians? It is the love of Christ that controls me. And that's juxtaposed to the law. It's not that the law compels me or controls me. It's Christ that compels me. And not just, Christ compels me, but it's the love of Christ that compels me and controls me. So here we find for Paul, as he's talking to Agrippa, as he's talking to Festus, and he's talking to all these Jews that are there as well, he's saying, I would to God that you would repent and believe like I do. Which is another way of saying that I would in the most strong desire and longing I could have, consistent with my longing for Christ. That in the same longing I have for Christ, I long for you to what? Have Christ. That's what he's saying. Do you sense here that something in Paul has changed? (laughs) Do you sense in in, in the storyline that for Paul, it's just about... Because I'm a recipient of Christ's love. I love because He first loved me, as John said in 1 John. And the derivative love I have from Christ that derives from Christ and reflects outwards causes me to love you. And that love is what? That you would know Christ. That you would repent from and repent to. And then have by the spirit the deeds consistent with repentance and then 30 and 31 and 32 are just the back a a color of the story Agrippa and and Festus get together along with uh, Festus's sister Bernice which is a whole nother story and they talk and they recognize just legally just from a legal standpoint, that there's no reason for Paul to be in jail. There's no reason for him to be condemned, except for the fact that he already appealed to Rome, to Caesar, they would have set him free. But of course, God is sovereign over those things, right? And why would would God be sovereign over these things? Why would he he orchestrate this the way he is? Because God's plan that Paul would what? Proclaim Christ in Rome. To a lost and dying world in Rome. That's exactly what we will see will happen. But oh my goodness, what a contrast between someone who has repented and believed and two people who have not. And I would present to you that there's a whole lot of people in our Christian world, in our Christian churches, that would claim to be Christians, but they look a whole lot more like Festus and Agrippa than they do like Paul. Does that make sense? There's a whole lot that have repented from, but not to, and therefore aren't bearing fruit consistent with repentance, and so they're much closer to Agrippa, and they're much closer to Festus than they are to Paul. Not that Paul's our example, Christ is, right? But we we know, we can see the evidence that, that the spirit is at work in, in Paul. Correct? And over the long term, it's really evident. For short term, there was evidence in some people, right? Was there evidence in, in for example, we're going to close on this. Was there evidence in, in Judas's life for a while that, that he was a believer in God? That he was a believer in Christ. Was there evidence? There was, wasn't it? It's was pretty clear. As a matter of fact, it was even probably more clear than most Christians today. Wasn't it? For three and a half years. He gave up everything, did he not? And followed Jesus. And at the crucial moment, what happened? It became clear that he repented from, but never to. Correct? Yes, the four soils. Demas, same thing. My goodness, look at Demas. Was Demas someone who everyone would look at and say he's a believer? Can I tell you something? Even Paul thought he was. Do you realize that? He and Paul ministered together. Didn't they? He and Paul ministered together. They traveled together. They ministered the gospel. They planted churches together. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, Demas left me because he covenantally loved the present world. It's breathtaking. Isn't it? That's why the scripture says, he who perseveres, what? To the end will be saved. And how do people persevere to the end? Because the Spirit is, has caused them to repent from. What's that? Yes, he's caused us to repent from. He's caused us to repent to. He's caused us to produce fruit consistent with repentance. And he has placed his seal on us, according to Ephesians that no one can break. And He is the one who preserves us to the end. So the result is that we do persevere to the end. You've heard me say many times, there's many people who start well but don't end very well. And that not ending very well is because someone has repented from but not to. And that by the Spirit. An interesting study on the contrast between Paul and Agrippa and Festus. I believe, according to the Scriptures, that the Spirit of God in someone is powerful enough for repentance from, repentance to, and and deeds consistent with repentance all the way to the end. I believe that. I absolutely believe that. And the results will be glory to God and praise to God that we will persevere to the end because he preserves us to the end. And in the end, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant at that that judgment day. And we will realize that he's only talking about the righteousness we've given that has affected everything because from beginning to end it is all the spirits work isn't it every step of the way repentance is from it is to and it evidences itself by the love of Christ working in us and that love of Christ causes all sorts of deeds to flow in consistency with the repentance let us pray and ask God to do His perfect work in our lives. Because our hope is Him. And He is more powerful than the sin of this world. He's more powerful than the evil one. He is more powerful than the kingdom of darkness. I want to remind you that Matthew 28 says, all power, Jesus said, and authority has been given unto me. He is the victor. Our hope is in Him. Amen? Our last song we're going to sing this week is Victory in Jesus, and that's what this is all about. Our victory is because of Him and in Him and Him alone. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. It is easy to, humanly speaking, go part way. But to go the entire way is a spirit work. And any part way is no way at all. And so, Lord, what we need is not to do better because You have said it's not up to the one who wills or works, but up to the one who shows mercy. And what we need this morning is Your mercy and Your grace towards us. What we need this morning is for You to be faithful to Your promises and to fulfill what You've promised to do in our lives. To change us and to glorify Yourself in us. Protect us from the self-deceit that says that we bring anything to the table. The only thing we bring is is our sin. And we desperately need you and your righteousness. So glorify yourself in us today. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.